Hey, this is Brent Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. And today on the show, I'm joined by an old pal of mine. We've been friends for decades. And even though we come from different musical pedigrees, so to speak, uh, we've always shared that same very strong affinity for music, regardless of preferred genres. And, you know, we've stayed up all night picking apart old Stones records over the years. We've gushed about the songs and the artists that we've loved and uh, just really celebrated that application that music has in our lives. And uh, I think that that affinity has been the cornerstone of our bond as friends and, and remains so to this day. Not many people better suited to do this program than my old pal, Mr. Liam Ennis. Welcome, sir. Thank you, sir, for having me. You're very welcome. It's great to have you. So I've got your list here, and it is a gem. I like a lot of these tunes. Some of them I have not heard, but let's get into it. I've got uh, the first one I've got for you here is Young Man's Blues by The Who. Young Man's Blues by The Who. I I have to give a little context for this song. This song and, and The Who in general sort of uh, factor into two sort of quintessential formative moments for me in my own musical development. Okay. Uh, the first of which is really the big bang of my my musical interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that goes back to my, my maternal uncle. So the guy that was married to my mother's, uh, sister, mm-hmm. uh, infamously known as uncle Barry. And my earliest memories of uncle Barry are he in his red disco sucks t-shirt, <laughs> when I was, uh, a wee tiny child. And, uh, in my early teens and by early, I mean, you know, just probably heading into, um, junior high mm-hmm. uh, when you're just starting to sort of find your own musical interests prior to that I, I had my musical explorations were through my parents record collection and were based probably as much on album cover art as they were the musical content but yep. but fortunately it was it was great content there was a lot of CCR and Santana and Stones and Janis Joplin and all this sort of quintessential classic rock stuff of the 70s nice. which would have been new at the time um, but there was also a lot of, uh, what was known in my house as mummy music, which was, you know, more, uh, oh God, soft rock, you know, bread, that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. uh, and that was starting to sink into me, I guess, or, you, you know, you only, you only know what, what you're surrounded by at that age. And, uh, Uncle yeah. Barry, who was uh, probably 10 years younger than my parents, uh, when I was around seventh grade, kind of pulled me aside and pressed a Max L 90 minute tape into my my prepubescent hand and said stop listening to that bubblegum shit listen to some real music <laughs> that is so so great you're fortunate man and he saved me in a sense god i mean hopefully i would have sort of righted the ship anyway but uh you know on that tape was uh, a lot of great stuff really diverse it was everything from early u2 and thin lizzy and blue cheer and uh, but captured amongst those songs was uh, Young Man Blues by The Who, and specifically the Live at Leeds version, Yeah, which might, would have been my first indoctrination. Not, well, that's not true. I would have listened to The Who via Tommy, because my parents had that record, and, mm. and I remember that LP, you know, which was, uh, it was incredible. The artwork that was included in it, it, it folded out into an embossed uh, pinball table. I mean, it was, you know, for someone who was basically picking their records based on the packaging at that time, that one was... Uh, could not be avoided yeah but in laying in bed at night and listening in via headphones to this this mixtape that my uncle had put together for me listening to young man's blues was a revelation uh i mean it was and is rock and roll in a bottle it's what it embodied the who during that period and the, the who during that period is 
the the embodiment of ballsy young testosterone filled uh 10 feet tall swinging dick rock and roll yeah it's just the guitar tone coming from pete townsend on those songs to this day is my my dream guitar tone it's uh p90 equipped sg into a a a high watt amp and it's just blistering nice yeah but at the same time townsend's guitar work uh, which is, you know, to this day, some of my favorite guitar work, not, mostly his rhythm stuff, not his lead playing, but is almost the least interesting interesting thing going on musically in that band because you've got Keith Moon and you've got John Entwistle who are just all over the map, right? Right, and right. are playing as much uh, lead playing as Townsend is, probably more so. You yeah. know, if you, if you just sort of zero in on either just the bass or the drums, um, they are just all over the map. It's, it's like... Um, speed metal meets jazz (laughs) and i've never been a big roger daltrey fan quite frankly but he again is the right singer for that band because it's this hyper masculine balls out wailing right which uh i'll take a hundred other vocalists over roger daltrey most of the time but for the who it's just perfect for that yeah um and and that song to this day i mean i put that car in i put that cd on in the car regularly still and it makes you want to drive really bloody fast oh yeah and pump your fist in the air yeah Uh, i I did mention they were involved in two formative moments and so i'll just sort of mention the other one in grade eight i was in grade eight when the who did their first of 105 reunion final concerts right in in toronto at exhibition stadium yeah it was broadcast um i stayed up late on a friday night to watch it and there was a kid in my class who had failed a couple grades, and so he was no longer a kid. You know, when you're in grade eight and you've got, you know, your mustache, uh, a guy, in, guy in your class who's driving to work every <laughs> in grade eight. <laughs> in grade eight, no shit. We had two of those guys, uh, and one of them, his name was, and I couldn't make this up either, Dino Bozo. And I hope to God Dino listens to this. Uh, I know that dude. Do you know Dino? Yeah, Bozo? I remember him seriously. I think I might have met him through you, actually. I've, you know, I would have had no contact with Dino Bozo post grade eight, probably because he stayed, I think, for How do I know that guy? third year while the rest of us moved on to grade nine. But, uh, <laughs> you know, Bozo, he was a good guy and he was uh, ahead of us rock and roll wise. Right. He had a he, he would wear Rolling Stones T-shirts and uh, I had a jean jacket with the who on the back of it sort of thing. And I think I was the only other kid in the class who actually stayed up and watched that who concert so that became sort of our bond at the time yeah but that was that was the gateway for me that mixtape from uncle barry and and that is the song that i remember most poignantly from that record that was uh you know the slap in the face from my well-intentioned uncle that said stop listening to air supply and listen to some <laughs> real fucking i like him good for him that's great i you know what we've talked about this in the past and, and i i knew about uh I didn't know his name, but I knew that you'd had an uncle who was almost um, a musical pusher in that sense and somebody that, you know, you could go to for really good music. I personally didn't have that when I was a kid, and I really, really wish that I did because I I kind of just got by on my own wits. You know, if, if there was a magazine in front of me, I would look at it, and if there was fire and leather and big hair, then, then that was my thing, <laughs> you know, but... um yeah, that's fantastic. And this song, Young Man's Blues, you actually introduced me to this song. And, uh, you know, like you say, it's it's frenzied, high-energy mayhem, man. It's I, I love it to this day, too. I, I think it's great. It's that band at the peak of their powers. They uh, they they never got any better, and they, you know, that's, that is just them at maximum potency right there. Yeah, yeah, agree. 
Your next pick uh, is interesting because of all of the potential songs by this artist that I could have chose from. Um, the, and this is why I love having these chats, because I want to hear what you have to say about this. It's Flamenco by The Tragically Hip. Yeah, you know, it's um, a bit of an odd pick, or at least it's a, a sort of a left field pick, even for me. And I um, I, I could sit and probably do a, a top 10 list of songs that make me feel just from the hip. You know, mm-hmm. I, yeah. They'd become a bit of a forgotten band to me, I, I admit, until last year when Gord Downey was diagnosed. Mm-hmm. Um, not entirely forgotten. The year before, I had gone to see them um, uh which had been the first time I'd seen them in quite a few years, but they had certainly entered a phase of their career uh, or in my musical life where I was loving them for what they had done and not where they were doing anymore. Um, I, I think last year's record, Man Machine Poem, changed that. It would have changed that regardless of the context of, of Gord's illness, but because it's just a fantastic record, one of my favorite records from last year. Yeah. But going back, I mean, there are so many more obvious songs that make that illicit feeling from me from the tragically hip um and the 90s if you were you know a young guy a young canadian guy in the 90s the tragically hip was everywhere right that's right um i there when i walked first walked into the dorms at laurentian university at age 18 it up to here was pouring out of every single dorm room they were just <laughs> on spot absolutely and they were just a couple years older than us uh, which made them seem just like more like your cohort than anything else more relatable like they could they could be like you right yeah um but there are so many great you know fist pumping songs from them from from grace Two to locked in the trunk of a car um but flamenco is sort of that comes from trouble at the hen house and it's it's towards the uh i don't want to say the backslide you know great as we've discussed in the past like even great great bands have a peak where they just crest right where they're just everything's working for them and the creative juices are flowing absolutely uh, trouble at the hand house is probably uh just at the, the maybe still at the top of the plateau uh for the for the the peak um, you could argue maybe they're starting to, to slide a little bit at that point or, or change in ways that we're going to start losing some of their core but flamenco and, and like so many tragically hip songs i mean they've got songs where there is a clear narrative to them right like 50 mission cap has a, a real story to it or 38 years old yeah but other stuff gord downey lyrics i stopped trying to make sense of them decades ago right and just <laughs> and i've seen interviews with him where he says you don't even you know don't even try there's a you know it's like random thoughts and ideas and words that sound nice together but he he's, he weaves them together into these tapestries where even if they were originally unrelated thoughts they somehow hang together and they create a mood and yeah. they create a uh, beautiful imagery and this is a song that just feels like um floating you know it is yeah. it is sort of surreal and it's uh, kind of a shoegaze song in many ways but it's got this pretty pretty simple guitar melody behind it dun, dun, dun. and the lyrics God only knows what the hell Gord is singing about, but some of the lyrics in that song, walk like a matador, don't be chicken shit. Like, yeah. in the broader context, I don't know, but it's like buck up and puff out your chest and, and strut, you know, strut's not even the right word, but walk with pride, make yourself big. Yeah. One of my favorite lyrics in a song ever is in that one where it's the, I think it's the last line of, of any of the lyrics where he says, maybe a prostitute could teach you how to take a compliment, compliment that's right think, yeah god damn that's good you know i don't even <laughs> i don't care what came before that or what context or what story he's supposed to be telling there but there's just profundity and beauty in that statement you know it's yeah. like you take this sort of wretched 
uh, image of a prostitute. Almost never is that conjured in any sort of flattering way. It's never something you aspire to. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and he's saying, you know, why don't you learn something from from one of these people who, you know, smile and, and listen to the hollow, uh, demeaning compliments of dirtbag men every day but you know they yeah. they take it so maybe that's not even what he means out of it but that's uh, i just find that uh, again contrast and paradox is always interesting right when you can make yeah. something ugly beautiful or something sad uh, pretty um, yeah that whole song is just ethereal to me and, and i mean just even coming up with this list of songs the the only criteria really is when i you know, you have certain candidates that jump to your mind and then you sit down and you listen to them. And if I can turn it off before the song ends, it's not making the list. Um, but any song that we're going to talk about today is a song that when I started playing it, even if I knew within the first five seconds, this is one of those songs I want to talk about on this podcast with you. I couldn't turn it off early. I have to listen to it till till completion. And yeah. and. Since I sort of um, drafted my my final list a couple of days ago, I've listened to this song four times since then. Oh, <laughs> I wow. just can't, I just can't stop. It's it's just beautiful. Yeah, no, it is, and and you're right about the the um, ironic paradox there because the the song is very kind of you know almost flouncy, and the lyrical message is anything but. To your point, right? And I I do love that last that 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 last line about uh, about the prostitute. That for me that's just classic Gordy because that comes out of the speaker and it's like what. Yeah. You know, and you go over it in your mind a couple times and, you know, who who knows what he meant by that. But I, th I think you're onto something there. I think that, it, that you're right. That's the correct interpretation. But, you know, we'll probably never know. And, and that's a band. That's a band that really needs each other, I find. You know, like you could uh, you could dismiss the rest of that band as being the, the act that supports Gord Downey because he is somehow the, the creative engine of that. But yeah. Um, and, and not to besmirch his solo work but i've i've listened to his solo work and it doesn't do to me what the tragically hip does right and i uh, i've not listened to any of the other i know rob baker had a solo record and you know, yeah. these other, the others may have dabbled in other things but it seems like gord goes a little too far to the artsy fartsy when left on his to his own devices but when he's you know embedded in that band uh they make much more straightforward accessible rock and roll uh behind it without it being cliche and, and create a frame or a, a palette for him to do his more artsy fartsy uh, creative sort of things that, that keep it grounded, you know? So it's yeah. so one without the other just doesn't work right for me. I agree. That's a, that's an excellent point. And I think that, you know, I would even say that Rob Baker, well, I would say probably mostly Rob Baker is the guy who almost juxtaposes that for him. Because if you, if you think about Gord Downey, when he was with the Sadies, he did, you know, something that was just, I don't know if you heard that, that music that yeah. he recorded with, he was yeah. very unhip, you know? Yeah. Um, and, uh, I, 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 sorry, go on. Yeah. No, I was just, it, Coke Machine Glow for me was kind of the same thing, his solo record. Yeah. And I still haven't got around to listening to the Secret Pathway, which I'm sure is profound, and but it doesn't sound fun you know, no, <laughs> in any yeah. way. I've actually sort of come to the conclusion, right? I don't know that it's right, but that uh, Paul Paul Langlois might be the most underrated mem member of that band. I think he's probably the riffmeister in that band that comes up with those yeah. uh, fantastic grooves. Yeah, uh, and I, I used to think to myself, man, I wish I could be that guy. He doesn't seem to do much. He's got my my guitar playing skills, which is pretty meat and potato. Um, but I I don't know. I think whoever comes up with the grooves in that song behind Gord is is the unsung hero. Yeah, um, you know Baker is obviously the most rock and roll guy in the band. I think 
Yep. But uh, it's almost like Guns N' Roses and Izzy Stradlin, right? He's kind of the guy in the shadows in the background, doesn't really want, you know, the accolades. He's not Axel, he's not Slash, but, you know, he's, um, you know, in essence, the engine behind some really, really great Guns N' Roses songs. Yeah. Uh, your next tune here, my friend, is Love and Happiness by Al Green. When I, I was, I brought this up and uh, I kind of laughed because when you look at the the cover of this record that this is on, I, th- I think it's, I can't remember what, what the name of it is, but he's got like the, the Ricardo Montalban thing going on with the... Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pretty... He's shirtless and giving you the, the Isaac from uh, Love Boat. Uh, That's right. Double guns kind of thing. Yeah, no, he's got like a full white suit on. Oh, does he? Yeah. Like oh, a, well, like a... I've, I've got it on the. I've got it on his greatest hits record. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's pretty funny. <laughs> He's sitting in one of those like exotic chairs in a in a yeah. white three piece suit. Yeah, funny, but great tune. Well, you know, I don't think I probably could have even told you who Al Green was prior to um, my moving to Memphis, Tennessee, back in ninety. What would that have been? Ninety eight or yep. so. I lived there from ninety eight till about two thousand and two, uh, and Al Green's from. Memphis, and in fact, uh, still still has a church there, the full full gospel tabernacle church, wow. which is out in uh, not the great part of town, which is also where Graceland is. And I and I actually went there one day for a service just to see. You know, I'm not a churchgoer, as you know, but um, but if you got to go to church, Al Green's church is the one to go to, man. It's like the fucking Blues Brothers church. It's people, <laughs> you know, that's my kind of church. It's full band with amplifiers and it's really full choir and uh, and uh, you know during first of all not a word is said during the sermon everything is sung wow um, and, and as the choir is singing they are having conniptions people are literally hitting the floor like James Brown and other choir members are picking them up again and propping them back wow. and, they just, and it's not for show it's like that's if you got to go to church man that's the way to do it. No kidding. Um, but, you know, so he's local legend. He's also sort of uh, among the, the true Christians in town. Got a bit of a bad rap because I think he lived a rock and roll lifestyle while being a, you know. A, a yeah. <laughs> so there were lots of ladies going through the full gospel uh, tabernacle <laughs> church. But uh, I, I can't say, you know, I would have been a Motown. I certainly would have been tuned into Motown before going to Memphis uh, yeah. from, again, my parents' record collection and, um you know, I had bought a box set uh, along the way of like everything Motown had produced. I loved Motown. Um, Motown is Detroit, and Stax is is Memphis, and that's where Otis Redding recorded and Staple Singers and 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 Al Green. Um, and so it's a different vibe down there. To this day, I, I hear horns in everything. Like it's uh, that's the Stax sound. Is you know Steve Cropper, Booker T, and the MGs, but also with uh, with a horn section behind it, playing lines that, um, as Keith Richards said when uh, when Otis Redding covered Satisfaction, he said, you know, that's the version I heard in my head, and yeah. where it's the horns doing that. Da, 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 da. It's it's not yeah. the fuzzed up guitar part, right? Yeah. So I, I I love that sound in general. It's I just find that's great dance music. It's soulful, and this particular song is just like dirty soul. Like it's there's so much to it. It's got the best friggin' groove behind it. That bass line and subtle drum beat behind it that carries the song throughout. Yeah, punctuated by these great horn lines. Um, and there are a couple of great breakdowns in that thing, and then Hammond B3 organ are all going on at the same time. Cleaner, clean as fuck guitar parts, but they're just funkier than hell. Yeah, it, it's just 
it's greasy, right? It's a great, it's for dancing, it's for driving, it's for sex, it's, uh, everything is in that song. I just think it is like, uh, I never get tired of that one. I listen to that one every year as well. Like a couple times a year, I will be sure to bust out Al Green's greatest hits front to back. It's just, it's perfect for a Sunday morning. It's perfect for a Saturday night. It's, uh, um, it is, it, it works for just about anything. If, if that's not an advertisement for love and happiness, I don't know what is, man. <laughs> I think Al Green should be paying you a royalty for that. He ought to be. He Seriously. To be. That's good. That makes me want to listen to it. All right. So a little change in direction here. Your next tune is uh, from, from from probably one of the grayest, bleakest albums that I've ever heard. Springsteen's Nebraska. It's State Trooper. Well, as you know, I'm a, I'm a Springsteen guy. I'm going way back that was you know part of my musical dna and part of my musical awakening at about age 14 yeah um, I, I had actually heard nebraska before that um and it didn't sink in because that's really not your starting point <laughs> especially <laughs> at age 14 right it's like here why don't you get drunk and pass out in the corner for a little while <laughs> get the gun out of your mouth and born in the usa was much more accessible obviously and, and in the age of the, the dawn of MTV, but um, I mean Springsteen, I, I love him in so many different ways. I, I you know, I, as you know, I'm sort of a, I don't even want to say an aspiring guitar player and songwriter, but I, you know, do those things in in the way that uh, suburban housewives do pottery, and you know, it's like. <laughs> It's not at all to sound self-important. It's just that I think it's part of the human condition that we all want to sort of in some way create or express ourselves. And so to that end, right, I, I grapple with trying to do my finger painting version of songwriting and whatnot. And and unfortunately, like it's only in recent years I've even tried to play Springsteen songs on the guitar because I just don't feel like I bring to the table what they need. And, yeah. and that's not a skill set thing. That's a there's a. Uh, earnestness that goes to that 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 you can't pantomime right yeah um, so I mean I could pick a thousand different Springsteen songs so I, if I had to pick one record at this point in my life Nebraska is my favorite record really it is bleak it, 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 it is bleak it, it, I have a hard time listening to that from start to finish well and as you know it's recorded you know it's him on a chair in a room like with a mic yeah <laughs> on a four they, track like, right Four track recorder and, a, and an acoustic guitar, and that's about it, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's after uh, it follows what, the, the river, I think, right? So he's, and, and, he's had some success. He's written dance records at the, up to this point. And no, he, he I, I think the story goes that he wanted to put this record out, and Columbia said no because it was too um, yeah. kind of grim. And uh, they said, okay, we will on the condition that you promise you know that your next record's just gonna you know blow the roof off with joy and glee and and sing-along classics <laughs> which was born yeah, in the I u.s he had been in a battle with the record company certainly over over probably creative yeah you don't want to kill your momentum when you've been on the cover of time and newsweek with 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 this suicide record right? <laughs> exactly yeah and born in the usa was after that right uh it was the one after i think yeah yeah yeah, it must have been, because this would have been like 82, 83, and then Born in the USA was 84, I think. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and the cover of the record really sums up the record. It's, yeah, it's, it's like a black and white, flat, you know, landscape kind yeah. of thing. It's like you're driving across a state with nothing in it, and that's kind of how the whole record feels. But it's full of desperation, right? It's like 
Uh, and as you know, I, I sort of work uh, in, in the world of offenders and um, um, the criminal justice system and whatnot. And it's mm-hmm. it's it's like a human take on some people who have done some really terrible things, desperate people. Right. Like in Johnny 99, which is not the song we're talking about, but he's pleading with the judge after he goes on a armed robbery spree that uh, it's more than all this judge that put that gun in my hand. Right. Like you, you recognize that this just wasn't my decision in the moment there that things led to this place. Yeah. And this song, I mean, stark and simple, right? It's just, dun, 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 dun. It's just uh, that droning bass, uh, bass notes sort of thing, chugging, and his vocals over it. And it conjures a picture of this person on the edge who is driving at night, and there's a cop car behind him, and he's just hoping to God the cop doesn't pull him over. It's like, uh, there are two outcomes here. You, you know, I'm, and if you pull me over, bad things are going to happen, but yeah. it doesn't have to be that way. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's not, it's edgy. Like it's, there's not, it, although it's that repetitive rhythm that is almost a 12 bar blues rhythm, like it done a slightly different way. It mm-hmm. is, it's, uh, it's, it's a dance song, but it's not that it's ominous. It's uncomfortable. It's like something bad's about to happen, but maybe, but, but maybe not, you know? Yeah. There's one line in it where he, he says, and he's imagining again, you can also, again, imagine that he's driving for a fair amount of time on the road thinking while well, this cop is behind him and, and on edge that he's going to get pulled over and caught for whatever it is he's done or is about to do. Um, and he's starting to speculate about the cop's life, you know, and he says, maybe you've got a kid, maybe you've got a pretty wife. The only thing that I've got has been bothering me in my whole life. Yeah. Uh, and on the live versions, he substitutes haunting for bothering. It's been haunting me my whole life. And I just like, fuck, he's got a burden, you know, and he doesn't want to do the thing that he's about to do. And, and he's sort of deferring control over that situation to the other person yeah. unjustly, <laughs> you know. Uh, but I, I mean, I, I, I surmise all of that from this song, right? This is the great thing about great songs is that if you look, I'd have to look down and look at the actual lyrics to that to see whether all of this stuff that I've sort of filled in the blanks on is actually there <laughs> in the lines or is it between the lines? But I've, cre- I've created an entire narrative and backstory for that, for that song, right? Like it's, uh, there's a real trick to writing a song, a Springsteen song or a, even more a Springsteen song than a Dylan song. Cause Dylan can be really cryptic in his, but S- Springsteen writes, narratives right he writes steinbeck novels yeah exactly uh, and he does it he creates characters and conflicts and and tells stories somehow without it becoming corny uh, yeah. i think other people will like, maybe don't do find it corny but whenever i try and do that it comes across as a really shitty country song <laughs> <laughs> but springsteen can tell a story and and it's i don't know how it, what it is that he does to avoid those pitfalls of of being camp um or corny but he seems to do it yeah i know what you mean he's just got this kind of certain grit about him that i think allows him to kind of get past that camp you know what i mean because i know I, I know what you're saying some of the the lyrics could be interpreted as eh, it's a little bit you know cheesy but like springsteen especially you know in his younger days was just this really gritty kind of tough kid you know? I'm reading his autobiography right now, and it's uh, it's equally engaging. You know, it's I, I, I can only read it through my own eyes, and I, I have so much adoration for them that you know it could it could probably it might not be great for everybody, but um, those first couple chapters where he's talking about his upbringing and his family and the characters therein, 
I have a certain level of appreciation for it because it informs my understanding of his songs and his songwriting. But I don't know that you need, I don't know that you need to be a fan to, to appreciate the stories he's telling. There's a richness to these characters and, mm. and it, it reminds me a little of my own family and my mom to this extent. I mean, my, my mother used to sort of as the woman who married into the Irish Catholic family where nobody on the Irish Catholic family ever said <laughs> what was actually going on. You know, it's like, la, 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 everybody ignore that. <laughs> yeah. You know, she would comment on these weird dynamics in the family and these characters, and it was never in a sort of pejorative, holy shit, what's the matter with your Uncle Charlie sort of way. It was like, isn't it amazing that <laughs> you know, a certain fascination about how these people had come to be and, and, and the way they operated uh, within within the rules of their own family, you know, and there's um, uh, there's that in this autobiography and there's that in these in all of his songs. There's, you know, he takes sort of these this despicable is not the right word but um you know broken characters yeah and and, and and imbues them with virtue somehow yeah no well said next tune so this one for me uh i don't know a lot about this artist but uh this tune's got kind of a, a vaguely uh steve earl feel to it for me it's speed trap town by jason isbell this is one where uh, and I've, I've sort of ordered it in my list directly after Springsteen because I think Jason Isbell is possibly my favorite songwriter right now who's in, in his zone, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's just really hitting his stride. Um, but I also have found he's a little bit of a tough sell to some people. I mean, maybe because I oversell it and I, I say things like he's the greatest songwriter alive. Right <laughs> <laughs> it's tough to live up to that. Um, and, and he writes about some really dark themes too, but... He has a, 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 a way of, of phrasing things that is just profound. I mean, this is, this is a song, if I could write one song, this might be the song that I would write. Like, mm. It just encompasses everything I love about every songwriter that I love, and, and including Springsteen. Yeah. Uh, and it's, uh, I mean, it's a dark, as I, as I explain it, if you haven't listened to it or if there, a listener hasn't listened to it, it's, it's not going to, you know, if you're in a good mood, you're probably not going to run out and drop the needle on this one. But yeah. uh, Speed Trap Town, it's, it's about him going home. It opens with him clearly at the checkout at a local grocery store in some one horse town that he grew up in. And the first line is, well, it's none of my business, but it breaks my heart. Okay. And he's come home to pay his respects to his dad who's been dying. And then as the story unfolds, you, you, it turns out dad's a real piece of shit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, but he's, he's home because he's got to pay his respects. And he's, you know, just kind of getting, he's going back to this place that he tried like hell to get the fuck away from. Yeah. And pay respects to a man who had paid no respect to him. And, um, and at the end of it, there's redemption that, that he's, you know, he asked the question a couple times during the song whether these are things that he can leave behind. And, it, and the final line of the song is that he's concluded that he, he can, and he's driving away from this a thousand miles away from this speed trap town. His dad was a, a state trooper who used to uh, uh, pull over pretty girls and, and uh, give them tickets and have affairs on his mother sort of thing. Right. So that's mm-hmm. the, where the, the title comes from. But I mean, it's darker than hell. I mean, he's, he's drunk in the stands at a football game and uh, he, you know, he's sleeping it off in the car until he's well enough to, drive to the hospital to go see the old man i mean it's it's uh, once again it's dark and it's bleak but jesus it's redemptive at the end of it and it's just so real and from what i know about jason isbell it's not autobiographical i don't i don't think i mean he's got a he's a recovering alcoholic but i don't know that you know the dad stuff is his stuff 
And that just amazes me that anybody, I think the, in the early stages of songwriting or of writing, probably, you probably have to be biographical, right? Yeah. Like that's what you draw upon because that's all that you know. And I, and I think that's probably uh, a rung on Maslow's hierarchy towards more evolved writing. Yeah. And so, th and then you can get to a point where you can write about things that you haven't directly experienced, but you imagine, right. And, and you can do it in a way that's convincing. Yeah. Uh, that is magic to me. I don't know how people pull that off. So yeah. I, I, I listen to that song and, uh, it's, uh, I think it's, it's just gorgeous. I, if, again, if I could write one song, that would be the one I would write. And then I'd play it for people and they'd go, wow, I'm sorry that your life is so terrible. <laughs> <laughs> But he's one of my favorite artists at this point. And, and you know, obviously other people think so, too, because he's developed a huge following over the last couple of years and a ton of uh, much like Ryan Adams, who does not appear on this list. Uh, but those two guys are good friends and uh, they have uh, a real mutual admiration society and appear on stage at each other's shows. See, I, I was going to bring his name up. That's really interesting that you did, because I was thinking about Ryan Adams as you were talking about Jason Isbell. Um, and I almost wanted to do like a little compare and contrast thing because you know, and again, you, I will credit you with uh, introducing me to Ryan Adams way, way back at the beginning of, you know, the 2000s. Um, and I love Ryan Adams. I think he is, he's definitely one of the most prolific songwriters today. I think he just keeps churning out good material. And, uh, you know, I don't know a lot about Jason Isbell. I know that him and Ryan Adams are friends. I saw that clip that you'd sent me of them doing uh, the Stones sway together, which I thought was really cool. But uh, yeah. I, I think their styles aren't necessarily different. I don't know. What do you What do you think? Well, you know, I've listened to a lot of interviews with both of those guys recently, and part of my sort of, uh, you know, the academic end of trying to figure crack the code on what they do. Yeah. Now, Ryan Adams has kind of said, you know, he, growing up. Growing up, he was much more of a metalhead, right? He, that's right. He almost wants, he almost wants to be one. Like that's the music he loves. Yeah. But but he recognizes that's not the music that comes out of him. <laughs> um, but they both have this sort of Nashville vibe to it, right? Like this, mm -hmm. there's this, there's a vein of music that uh, I became aware of living in in Memphis. And you mentioned Steve Earle. I mean, I was aware of Steve Earle before I went there, and he's probably a, a great exemplar of that. And it harkens back to the old outlaw country stuff, the Whalen and the Willie and the and the Merle Haggards. Yeah. And and in a contemporary sense, the guys that we're talking about, Ryan Adams, Jason Isbell, Sturgill Simpson are all in that camp too, where they're they're too rock and roll for puritanical country, um, and they're they're too country for pure rock and roll. They fall between the cracks somehow. They got one foot in either camp. Yeah. And I don't tend to love country music per se, but I really like music that is country influenced. Mm -hmm. And both of those guys, I think the country is more obvious in Jason Isbell's current work than it is in Ryan Adams' current work. But 10 years ago, there was it was much more obvious in Ryan Adams' work, right? Okay. I, I don't I think he lives in LA now and he used to live in Nashville, right? So I and grew up in North Carolina, so I think he maybe was closer to um, you know, certainly coming out of Whiskey Town and in his early days, he was much more of a uh, the country influences were much more obvious. And since then, the, the pop influences have become more apparent for for Ryan Adams. But yeah, uh, I don't I, I, I will say, I mean, as much as I love Ryan Adams, I don't I don't connect to his lyrics anywhere close to the way I connect to um, Jason Isbell's lyrics. Mm. Isbell's lyrics are are beautiful stories. And um, I can't think of a Ryan Adams. Well, I'm sure there are Ryan Adams songs that are those too. Um, 
well, they're a little bit more cryptic. So something like wildflower, say, I don't know. It's it's not it's not a, it's not a narrative. It's not a story, but it's almost kind of an abstract thought. A song that almost made my list was "Come Lift Me Up" by uh, Ryan Adams, right? Which I think is I think is the title, right? Yeah, come uh, come pick me up. Come pick me up. Yeah. Uh, which is sounds very autobiographical, and I think it indeed is, right? It's and it's a great song about mm. <laughs> you know there are lyrics in there about you know yeah steal steal my records scroll my, my friends. friends. Yeah, it's great. It's clearly it sounds very autobiographical, but it, it it doesn't transcend into that writing about a character and making you care about the character so much. It's more like I can identify that with that because we've all kind of gone through that in some way, shape, or form. Exactly. But it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel like that more highly evolved, empathetic projection that I'm talking about that that Isbell seems to do, where he creates characters that are not surely they're derived from him in some way, shape, or form, but they're not him. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, so your next tune, my friend, is uh, Helter Skelter by the Beatles, Select Flamenco. Kind of an interesting selection. You know, I showed this list to my uh, my bandmate. Uh, yeah. And that was his comment, too, is that's surprising. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think part of his surprise is that it's a Beatles song on the list and there are no Stone songs. And he said that uh, that was the back end of the that surprising comment was I thought there would be a Stone song on the list. And, I did, and too. There are a million Stone songs that could and should be on the list. Yeah. But, and, you know, in a world where, and I do think you can kind of dichotomize things, there are, there are Beatles people and Stones people, you don't have to be one or the other, but there's a preference, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And I'm very much a Stones person over a Beatles person in that respect. And and within the Beatles, you're a John person or you're a Paul person. And I'm a John, uh, I'm a Paul person, which... Almost every time I say that, I seem to be talking to a John person who wants to spit in my face because (laughs) somehow... Paul is the lesser beetle, you know, but I, I certainly don't feel that way. I don't either. But Paul, you know what? But, but, sorry, before you go on. So when I was at yeah. school, I think that, you know, it, through different phases of your life, you become different beetles. That yeah. sounds like a funny statement. But when I was um, in university, when we were at Laurentian, I was definitely a John. But, you know, as I um, kind of maybe gained a little bit more wisdom and matured a little bit, I became a Paul person, I found. I mean, it's overgeneralizing it to say that Paul writes about more day-to-day stuff and john seemed to write about more esoteric philosophical psychedelic shit right like yeah you could say well he's a strawberry fields guy and uh paul woke up out of bed dragged a comb across his head you know it's it's more that sort of day-to-day stuff yeah um it's not that easily reduced and and in fact that's probably the most amazing thing about either or both of those guys right is the incredible canon that they generated in such a short amount of time that's right and, and what incredible ground it covers like i don't know how you wake up even if you devoted all day every day to that for for the 10 years they were sort of burning bright as the beatles how you churn out that much product mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so much quality product yeah but health and skelter i mean that's proto metal right and that is uh to this day that song is as heavy as fuck it's as heavy as anything you're right, right? and, and if you define heavy as something more than just how many notes per minute and how many and how much gain you have on your amp, right? Um, it, it is got as heavy a vibe as anything Black Sabbath ever did, anything that any metal band, Mastodon or Metallica or anybody is doing today. Mm-hmm. That is heavy fucking metal right there. Yeah. And it's it sounds like you know we talk about songs that make you feel. This conjures an image from every time I hear Helter Skelter, I imagine. Um, 
you know, in war movies or, or recruiting commercials for the military, they'll show um, paratroopers jumping out of the back of one of those big potbelly planes, right, where the, the back end of it like lowers down like a garage door and then yeah. everybody just walks out and throws themselves out. I always imagine like that plane and the and the the back door opening and then somebody pushing the whole band out on a pallet like Ringo's there in his whole kit and John and like the whole crew of them from the rooftop of uh, Apple Records sort of yeah. like, being hoisted out of the back of an airplane yeah. and plummeting earthward right the whole song sounds like plummeting earthward except there are little guitar riffs at the end the turnaround at the end of the chorus na, 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 where it goes back up again right so it's diving 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 it's gonna impact but the na, 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 it gets yeah. a little bit more lift, and then it soars again right and dive bombs there's a thousand things going on in that song at any given time i don't know how many tracks or overdubs they did it's not quite in time right they're stepping all over each other's toes and coloring over the lines and yeah. um, it sounds like it was done in one chaotic take yeah and nobody went back and said okay can we play it to a click so that we all get it right like <laughs> it's just but that's what i like about it it's got that very kind of crude harsh sound and it does sound to your point like it just got you know somebody hit record and it got recorded and they said do not touch that you know as ugly as it might be that was genuine yeah and there's no room in it right there's a, a there is no room in that song there is just it sounds like an elevator full of musicians banging the shit <laughs> that's true i think they kind of did that a little bit on purpose though it sounds you know it, it oh, do, yeah. do you know what i mean i think everything they did was on purpose i think george martin and that's like a whole nother podcast of what uh, what people do to arrange and orchestrate these songs to make them the best thing that they could be. I mean, that song could be could be other songs had it been recorded in a cleaner fashion. Right? That's if right. They just wanted to straight ahead four piece. Okay, you do this and you do. Let's all uh, let's all make sure we're hitting the turns at exactly the right spot. It doesn't feel like that, right? No. It feels like Paul takes a hard left and then the other guys are like following a half beat behind him not even in unison, right? Like one guy's a half beat ahead of him, one guy's a half beat behind, and they're just all just running at breakneck speed. Exactly. Um, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. The juggernaut. The whole song is just a juggernaut. And and again, it's just there's – how many years later is this now? Is it 50? 40 for sure. Uh, when did this come out? 69? Still nothing heavier. Nothing heavier. Yeah. No, I agree. Definitely a pioneer for sure. Go I'll ahead. I last this last thought, like – Paul McCartney has the best rock and roll scream voice in the world, right? Like there are, there are better singers than Paul McCartney, but nobody screams better than Paul McCartney. I do agree with that. And not a lot of people would, but I do. Fuck those people. Fuck them. Who cares? This is our show. (laughs) All right. Next tune. Speaking of uh, aggressive voices, we have Tom Waits in downtown train. This one's tough for me to listen to my friend. It is, is it? It is. Let me uh, let me flip roles with you for a moment. I ask you, why is it tough for you to listen to? His voice is just, I, I, you know, I'm kind of a voice guy. I'm one of those guys that you know love instrumentation, love musicality, all that stuff. But if if I don't enjoy the singer's voice, then I I can't listen to the tune. Mm. Tom Waits for me, his voice is just fucking bizarre. Like I can't even figure it out. Well, fair enough. I, I that voice is. I get that. I, 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 it's that whiskey soaked. His voice is a character, right? Yeah. In and of itself, it's it's not even that he's playing a character. Although in some of his songs and some of his records, he really is playing a character, right? He's just this this barfly, yeah, um, 
breed urchin sort of hobo thing. Yeah. Um, but I just, I love the gravel in that voice um, in the right context. This song, this is more about, certainly about the song more than it is about the album or about his catalog. I bought this record on vinyl because of this song. I would, would have been a teenager at the time. Yeah. Don't think I listened to any other song off that record. The rest of it did nothing for me. And then years later, Rod Stewart co-opted it and covered it and yeah. it ruined it for me for about 10 years. Like, <laughs> even, even now I have to sort of struggle like hearing Rod Stewart's voice and his saccharine sweet cheese ball. Version. <laughs> it, it creeps in, right? I start to listen to it. I start hearing the Rod Stewart version and I have to very consciously kind of tamp it down and go, no, you can't have this. From <laughs> you know, I, it, I, I just, it's funny that you say that because, you know, I think about Rod Stewart and I, I generally like Stewart's voice. I mean, uh, you listen to the, the old faces stuff and I thought he did a good job with that. But <laughs> I know exactly what you mean because it is, I've yeah. heard that his, his version of Downtown Train, it is very polished and very saccharine. Yeah, I, I was listening to an interview with Steve Jones of the Sex Pistols just yesterday, actually, and he was talking about when he was growing up, you yeah. know, he was obsessed with Rod Stewart and the faces. Yeah. To, and then he went to America and became, you know, this this clown, this pomp sort of guy, right? And, yeah. and he's talking about 15 years before I really thought he really cashed in and started doing the, the Great American Songbook and stuff like that. But there was a time when he just had the greatest white blues singer voice. Yes. Cooking. Exactly. Just amazing. Yeah. But that that said, he sullied this song for me, and I and I won't let him have it because I just I just <laughs> think it is perfect we talked to uh, you know we were talking about george martin talked about orchestration and arrangement and this song i mean it's a it's a beautiful song to begin with i do love tom waits's voice when it is uh, well suited to the song and this is one of those songs but the the instrumentation around this is very very sparse there mm-hmm. is i guess there are two guitars there's one doing rhythm which is just that chucking sort of you know it's not it's kind of a muted rhythm part yep and behind that, there is a very sparse drum beat, which I imagine is just a, a kick drum and a snare. And that's probably it. I don't even think there's a cymbal. No hi-hat? I don't think so. Hmm. Uh, there, there might be if I pay attention to it. But it, I mean, it's the, the, the most basic of kits, and, it, and the drums are recorded really, really dry. You know, mm-hmm. it's, um, it just feels like they're going to turn to dust every time he hits them. <laughs> and then there's that soaring guitar part, which I, I imagine what it's played on some sort of hollow body but it's just this soaring beautiful vibrato it just pierces through it Mm -hmm. and it provides this sort of this light to it and this um uh, it elevates it and makes it almost hopeful you know and 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 just adds this element of beauty to it that otherwise is just sort of it's not plotting the rest of it but i i i include it where I do in the list, it would have made the list regardless. Um, but I include it where I do in the list because it is in stark contrast to Helter Skelter, right? Yeah. Which sounds like 46 instruments all being played at breakneck speed with no regard for anybody stepping on anybody else's toes. And this one feels like there is a ton of room between people. Yeah. Very, very basic. The, the parts are not, um, you know, nobody's flying up and down the fretboard. Nobody's playing, um, you know, eighth or 16th notes on anything it's all really rudimentary mm-hmm. uh, and it feels like musically everybody has a ton of room to swing their arms there's nothing in that song that doesn't belong there it is just an economy of words and music and because of that everything that's there 
burns bright and stands out. Well said. But isn't it amazing how that can be that meaningful to me, but it just doesn't do it for you, you know? Yeah, no, <laughs> but, like... but, but you know what? That That's the beauty for me of, of, you know, you can call musical democracy, right? And that's one of the reasons why I love doing this show is because I don't always agree with, you know, songs that people like, but I don't have to, right? And you don't have to like the stuff that I like, but I, you know, there's a certain bit of learning in there. And I love the fact that you've, you've introduced me to loads of music. Um, some of it I like, some of it I don't like. But, I mean, I think the learning is the most important part. It is interesting that, you know, I don't like some of the stuff that you do and vice versa, but I think it would be pretty weird if we all like the same things. I think I think well, it, people make a big mistake um, oftentimes when they say, you know what, I don't think that's a good song, and here's why. Or this is a shitty song. or you know, To you it might be, but... Well, as we've discussed, I mean, for those of us who are in the tribe, mm-hmm. the, the tribe of, of loving music, and, and there's no way for that not to be sort of shitty and disparaging to people who are not in the tribe. It's, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, there is a, a look down your nose sort of truth to that, but um, it's less about the specifics and more about the feel that mm-hmm. we care about. Right? It's like, we, all, we all get that it touches that nerve for us, or we get that there's this sort of third rail of, musical spirituality that runs through the world and we all can reach out and touch it that's right not necessarily the the poison that you would pick for yourself all the time but we as long as you're talking to somebody else who gets it yeah whatever medical way that is yeah um then everybody in in that tribe is quite happy to have the conversation with the other people it's not territorial it's not defensive it's not meant to i don't need to disparage yours to make mine better right exactly I, I, there never seems to be that inclination amongst people who are in that in that tribe that's right i fully agree and i think that you know in that tribe you have a certain amount of respect for the fact that you know if you don't like somebody else's music you, you respect the fact that they do you know take a band like motley crew right uh, in my opinion, I mean, you have to enjoy them for what they are. They're not highly skilled musicians. They're not sophisticated musicians, but they make people feel a certain way. So, y- y- in some context, you you have to respect that. You know. Well, and as long as I'm talking to somebody who is clearly in that tribe that we're talking about, they can recommend something to me, and I will listen. I'll give it a, an honest listen because mm-hmm. I know it's coming from somebody who has that same sort of deep abiding appreciation for the spiritual part of that, right? Like that's, yeah. that's as close to spiritual as I get on any level, frankly, it's, <laughs> is, is the, uh, the, the love and appreciation of music and, and ideally even to be able to stand there and make it with people is, is, you know, mm-hmm. an even better manifestation of that. But as long as it's coming from somebody who I, I recognize is within that clan, um, I'll listen to it, man. If it's, I don't care if it's some weird beat jazz thing that I'm not going to be into or some sort yeah. of, uh, uh, speed metal or you know so whatever it is if it's coming from somebody the the, the credential that that makes me uh, open to it is that you're you're one of us right if, exactly. you're, if we're both if we both understand that part of it and you're getting that thing out of it that we both love so dearly then i'm going to sit down and that's at the end of the day that's selfish i just want more of that right you want yeah. more of that juice <laughs> if that's you're right. telling me i can find it over here i'm willing to listen Exactly. And for me, I, I want to learn about that. I mean, I might not like the song, but I want to learn about why you do. I want you to tell me and I want to, you know, turn over some rocks and try to figure out why you would like that song and maybe try to figure out why I wouldn't. Yeah. So we can agree to disagree on Tom Waits <laughs> <laughs> within the same tribe. Last tune, my man. So uh, it's a it's a gem. 
I love this. It's Helpless by Neil Young. And we can we can come back together on that one, I'm quite sure. Right? We and, certainly uh, can, you bet. For so many reasons, so many reasons. Like uh, Neil Young songs, God, you can pick one that's, uh, uh, again, just a thumper, right? Something that is uh, unbridled, crazy horse-driven, you know, rock and roll song, yep. of which there are many down by the river and that sort of thing, Cortez the Killer. Like, yep. All those songs are great. But, I mean, helpless for so many reasons, right? Like... At this point, it's almost autobiographical. But but the, here's the, the cool thing about Neil Young's songs, and, and I've heard him articulate this uh, in interviews, is that he talks about the trick of songwriting, and I'm sure he wouldn't phrase it that way. It makes it sound calculated. But the, to write a song that people connect to, you have to make it specific enough that they they can grab onto it, but not so specific that you limit how many people can grab onto it, right? Hmm, interesting. Um, if you listen to a song like Helpless, as much as I love the Steinbeckian sort of uh, storytelling of a, a Bob Dylan or uh, a Bruce Springsteen or a Jason Isbell, mm-hmm. Neil Young's lyrics are never like that. They're super cryptic, yeah. and they're they're almost nonsensical much of the time. And this song is no different, really. I mean, they're, they're, it conjures images, but there's no real story in this. Yeah. But at the same time, it has become autobiographical. I mean, you and I are both from Northern Ontario and that's how it starts, right? Mm-hmm. There is a town in North Ontario yep. and it just, all my changes were there. Like it's, it's that's, that's a level, not the only level on which I connect to this song, but it, it reminds me of God, you know, standing around bonfires and drinking molten Canadian in blind river and yeah. shit like that. Uh, it reminds me of, of, everything about that jumping in a freshwater lake which are everywhere in that part of the world it, it, he doesn't mention those things in the song but those are the images that it conjures for me partly because that's what goes with there is a town in north ontario partly because i've heard or played this song around campfires a thousand and five times and and when you're starting to play guitar this is one of the first ones you learn because it's three chords is all uh, but I think what, what really illustrates how this song transcends three chords and some lyrics that are kind of pretty but otherwise don't hang together in any sensical fashion. Uh, if, you, if you watch The Last Waltz or listen to The Last Waltz by the band, right, mm-hmm. their final concert at Winterland where they have their all-star guests come out, Neil Young comes out and does a version of this song. It's always a great song. If you if you're pl- have to play with other people and you know it's not people you normally play with this is a great one because it's just three three chords over and over again but it creates a great platform for just everything from gang vocals to singing in rounds to playing sort of you know passing the lead around you do a bit i'll do a bit and in that last waltz version it's neil singing in the way that neil used to sing god bless him you know he hasn't been able to sing that way in 30 years with that that piercing sort of falsetto falsetto operatic yeah that turns off so many people, but I find so beautiful in its fragility. Yeah. And he, he doesn't have that anymore. He sounds nasally and, you know, but that's, that's life. You know, Stevie Nicks can't sing like she used to either, but, mm-hmm. um, but he's singing his part. And then Joni Mitchell is wailing in the background. And uh, then you've got the entirety of the band singing just the refrain behind them. Helpless, helpless, helpless. Yeah. Just those three simple parts. It's almost like, singing Mike, uh, Michael wrote your boat ashore or something in rounds, right? It's like, uh, it's, there's nothing complicated about it. It's just, it's three simple things that go together beautifully. 
And it transcends all of that. It's not just some parlor trick of, uh, hey, if you do this and I do this, doesn't it sound neat? It's, it becomes so much more than the sum of the parts, you know? And that's yeah. so much beauty in that song. And it's just, it, it works in, in so many different ways. It, it always sounds peaceful to me. Yeah, it transports you to, but to nowhere specific. <laughs> really, yeah. it doesn't take it doesn't take me to one particular place, like the front porch of my old house that I grew up in, or something. It just takes me back to a, a time more than anything else. Well, I think that's even better. It takes you to a number of places, you know. And I, I agree yeah. with you when you when you hear that first line. I go right back to my hometown right off the bat. I go right back to Northern Ontario, and I think about all those times that that, that we'd had up there. So. That, for me, is a very, very important aspect of music, and I think that Neil Young songs are you know, close to the top of my list when, when you talk about that idea. So that is the end of your list, my friend. Um, these are great. I, I, you know, I want to thank you for the, the insight that you provided and, and the eloquence that you provided in talking about these songs. I thought you did a great job. Um, it's no surprise to me because we've been having these chats for decades, of course, but thanks so much. Well, thank you very much for the platform and for the opportunity. The only thing that's missing is a bar stool and, uh, you know, another four hours ahead of us to continue to chew on this bone. But, uh, and a couple of drinks. And a couple of drinks. <laughs> but I, I suspect we will do it again at some point. We certainly will. You'll be a recurring guest for sure, my friend. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you, man. Take care. You too. This has been Brent Jensen and No Sleep Till Sudbury. Till next time, take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide. <laughs>